Thank you for the reading. It's so great when we get to a church that sings such Christ-exalting songs, right? Christ, our hope in life and death. Thank you for that, for that reminder. And it's a great pleasure to be here again. Good morning, everyone. And I don't know if this is of anyone's interest, but there are some pretty easy ways for you, for me, to actually get to like you, if you want to connect with me. It's a passion of mine to love and to play soccer. So if you like soccer, that's an easy way to connect with me. It's not like you can't connect with me if you don't like soccer. We can connect on many different levels. If you like our arch rival from my city back home, which is called Atletico, it's going to be harder. But I mean, you can try. But there are some ways that our relationship will be shut off, shut down pretty quickly. And one of them is if you don't like my wife. She's such an important part of my life, and I love her so dearly that if you don't like her, I ain't going to like you. <laughs> and in a similar way, but in a much deeper level, this is true for God the Father and God the Son. If you don't have the Son, you cannot have the Father. And if you have the Son, you automatically have the Father. When it comes to me, if you like Carol, it's going to be easier to like me, but I'm not that easy to please, so hold your horses. But with God the Father and God the Son, if you have one, you have the other. Your response to the Son is your response to the Father. It doesn't indicate how you feel about the Father. It doesn't give a pretty good idea about your relationship with the Father. No, your response to the Son is your response to the Father. And that is the main point of the text that we read today. And it's a pretty exclusive claim. So we need a little bit of unpacking as we go along. But first, let's set the context a little bit of where we are in this story. Last time I preached here, we were talking about the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and now we're talking about the end. So Jesus' popularity has been growing in the last chapters, and it has come to a point where at a few verses ago, the Pharisees cried out and said, who's going to stop him? Like the whole world is believing in him. And from verses 20 onwards in chapter 12, we saw that the Greeks were coming to see Jesus, and he cried out, my hour has arrived. His hour that we've been expecting in the book of John all along. His time to go and die on the cross and rise again. So he's proceeding to teach about his imminent death, and people started questioning him, why is the Messiah that you claim to be going to die? What's going on there? Well, at this moment, verse 36 Jesus just slips away. He leaves them there hanging in the air, and he just slips away from the conversation. Very typical of him, right? And what we get afterwards, and the beginning of the portion we just read, is this little intermission, a break in the story. The Apostle John is going to tell us what's going on. What is the reason for why people, even though seeing Jesus' signs, still not, did not believe in him. I mean, chapter 11, he had just raised Lazarus from the dead. 
But verse 37 says, even though he had done many signs among them, they still did not believe in him. So our text today starts with this comment from John, a summary about the unbelief of the people, and goes until the end of chapter 12. And the reason why this is such an important and key moment to Jesus' ministry is that these are his last public words. After this comes the Last Supper, the trial, the crucifixion, his resurrection, where he only speaks to his disciples. But right now is the last time that the world around him gets to listen to him. It's the last thing that Jesus wanted to tell the world before he left it. And like I said, the central idea of this whole passage is that your response to Jesus is your response to God. And we'll see three evidences for that as we go along. The first evidence is seen from verses 37 to 43 out of John's side notes, and it is that those who deny Jesus deny God. Those who deny Jesus deny God. We have noticed that our text begins saying, though he, though Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. But if the text says that they did not believe in him and Jesus, why should we claim, why should that lead us to say that they denied God? Well, probably you notice that there are two little quotes there that John puts in coming straight out of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah prophesies in Israel 700 years before Jesus. But look at how boldly John speaks of this quote, using it to Jesus in verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, Jesus' glory, and spoke of him. What is so so interesting is that the Bible never said that Isaiah saw Jesus, right? And actually, this quote that came before in verse 40 is straight out of Isaiah 6, where we read that Isaiah had a vision of God's throne. It's that passage where it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord our God. The whole earth is filled of his glory. John quotes that passage and says, Isaiah saw his glory, Jesus' glory. Not the Father's merely, but Jesus, the Son of God, His glory. John is basically claiming that the vision of the throne of God and all His glory is a vision of Jesus and all His glory. This idea is repeated again by the same person, John, way ahead in Revelation chapter 5.13, where all the creatures in heaven are claiming To him who sits on the throne, God the Father, and to the Lamb, God the Son, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Equal worth, equal honor, equal glory. Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus. Seeing Jesus is seeing the glory of God. And the problem in Jesus' day is just as it was during the ministry of Isaiah back then. The Israelites could not see the glory of God in all that he was doing. 
they resisted the message of the prophet Isaiah, commissioned by God, and much more emphatically, they are seeing God himself in human flesh. And as they behold Jesus, their conclusion is not glorious. His signs, unconvincing. His teaching, unconventional. His beauty, unattractive. They don't see the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's actually what the first quote is all about. Look again at verse 38. Lord, who has believed where he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Why could they not believe? They could not see the glory of God in all of it. They saw Jesus as a low status, servant of all, who made friends with all the wrong people, healing on all the wrong days, and they simply could not see God in all of this. They were instead expecting or craving for something else. And John tells us, or better yet, he illustrates to us what that was in verses 42 to 43. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than the praise that comes from God. So what's John describing here? Towards the end of Jesus' ministry, if we go back chapter 9, 22, the Pharisees had issued a statement that whoever acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah was to be put out of the synagogue. So even though some of the leaders believed in Jesus, they were afraid to confess it in public because they were going to be put out of the synagogue. This is an interesting scenario, right? Because the text says they believed, but they did not confess him openly because they loved the praise of God more than the praise of man. So how should we evaluate this? Did they believe or did they not believe? The most clear text to make us question the belief of the authorities comes from John 5, 44, where Jesus said, how can you believe if you accept glory from one another, yet do not seek the glory that comes from God. How can you believe? You see, in both of these texts, they seek the glory from men and not the glory from God. But in one of them, Jesus reproaches them. How can you believe? It's impossible to believe if that's your case. And in the other, John affirms that they believed. The only logical explanation that I find is that John is talking about two different kinds of belief. One simply agrees mentally or feels right about Jesus, and the other truly trusts, which is another great translation of the New Testament term for faith, to trust in, to rely on, a childlike trust that knows the Father has got me. I see DuPont on Dan's back, and like he knows the Father has got me. That's the kind of trust, the childlike trust, that is true belief that you cannot have if you love the glory of God, the glory of man, more than the glory of God. A belief that comes from the heart and changes everything about the one who believes. Matthew 10, 32 to 33 says, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. 
But whoever denies me before man, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. This is serious stuff, friends. Belief is all that Jesus asks. There is nothing added to the gospel. But true belief costs a lot. It may cost a spot at the synagogue. It may cost a spot at your job. It may cost the praise of man, the approval of others. How does your belief look like? Does it only affect a part of who you are? Or does it completely reorient you? Does Jesus serve to simply fulfill needs and desires you already had? Or did he come to bring you new and glorious desires? So that you don't desire the praise of man more than the praise of God. And when it came to that people, God chose to reveal his salvation in such a way that it would be utterly unattractive to those who love the praise of man more than the praise of God. He planned it this way so that the heart of those who are just so deceivingly in love with what we can gain from other people and the things of this world that they would always harden their hearts to the good news of the gospel. After all, how can you believe in Jesus if you accept the praise from man but do not seek the praise that comes from God? God does not take the answer to that question lightly. He's so jealous of his son. You can't deny the son and still have the father. And that's the message of the first point. And now we move from John's side note about the unbelief and into Jesus' teaching. So after he had slipped away in verse 36, Jesus comes back now for this last piece of teaching from verses 44 to 50. The context is a little hard to pinpoint. Uh, we know he's still in Jerusalem, but we don't know necessarily how long after that he came back. But for John, clearly these things belong together. Jesus is still in this urgency mode, and I agree with most commentators who said that this is not necessarily something new, but a summary of all of his teaching, what he thought was important for the last bit of teaching for that crowd. So in this teaching portion, we'll get two more reasons why your response to Jesus is your response to God. The first evidence was that those who deny Jesus deny God. And the second evidence is that those who believe in Jesus automatically believe in God. Let's read again verses 44 to 46. It said, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, he sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. In a sense, this is a big comfort for us, right? If we have Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we don't need to be questioning if we truly know God, if we truly have God. Earlier in chapter 8, the Pharisees had asked Jesus, where's your father? And Jesus said, you do not know me or my father. For if you knew me, you would also know my father. 
That's the same claim here in verse 45 that he makes again. But in another sense, this same word about Jesus also puts us in danger. The world that we live in is all about inclusion. It's all about saying that you can believe or be anything that you want. No one can tell you what to do and much less what to believe in. But the second you say that you believe that Jesus is the only way to God, people lose their minds, right? How can you say such a thing? How can you tell people what to believe in? You can't do that. A follow-up question should be, what do you tell, what do you say it's what you're doing to me right now, right? You're saying that I can't say Jesus is the only way. But the point is that having Jesus is all you need in order to have God. You don't need to look any further. You find Jesus and the search is over. Christ is our hope, only hope, in life and death. He has already been saying that back in verse 35 to 36. Walk in the light, trust in the light. And now he says again in verse 46 that whoever believes in him will not remain in darkness. And why is that? It's because they will see what the light illuminates, which is God himself. There is no better representation of who God is than Jesus Christ himself. It is only through Jesus that we can have a relationship with God. And friends, this has much to do with all of our Christian life. But I think it is especially relevant for the task of evangelism. When it comes to witnessing our faith and engaging in gospel conversations, I know it can be a little bit hard to get into those, but I want to suggest that it's always better to ask someone, how is your relationship to Jesus, rather than how is your relationship to or with God? And here are a few reasons for that. So, first of all, like we discovered, many people might believe in a different God than the God of the Bible. So this helps us to pinpoint who we're actually talking about when we say, how's your relationship with God? If you ask, how's your relationship with Jesus, you know better what God they're talking about. Second, a lot of people might see God not as a personal being, but more as an idea, right? Oh, I just don't like the idea of God. Well, when you deny Jesus, you're not denying an idea, you're denying a person who is God himself in the flesh. So talking about Jesus makes that clear that your relationship is not to an idea but to a person. And it can also be easier to bridge a conversation about God. You see, a lot of people, when they hear God, they hate God for many reasons. Their life is not the way they want it, it to be. They have family members who passed away and they blame all on God. So when you talk about Jesus, probably for them a historical figure, they'll be more inclined because he was that nice guy who loved people. So with that, you can bridge a conversation about the gospel. And lastly, that question is a great way to gauge someone's spiritual maturity. Because if you ask someone, hey, how's your relationship to Jesus? And he says, oh, I've always been a Christian my whole life you know there's something to talk about there, right? We're not born Christians. Same way if they say that um, their relationship to Jesus is just fine because they're good people, 
you know that there is something to talk about there, right? So if you can choose, it's always better to ask someone, how's your relationship with Jesus instead of how is your relationship with God? Because if you don't have him, you don't have the Father. If you have him, you have the Father. So just as we have seen, those who deny Jesus deny God, and those who believe in Jesus automatically believe in God. So now let's read again the final verses for our final evidence today, starting in verse 47. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who has sent me has himself given me a commandment, which is what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. The last evidence that our response to Jesus is our response to God is that those who hear the words of Jesus and do not keep them have forsaken eternal life. Those who hear the words of Jesus and do not keep them have forsaken eternal life. We'll need to look at this a little carefully if we want to get the point across because the argument is powerful, but it needs a little unpacking to do. One of the first things that you probably noticed as I was reading along is that I focus on some key words that get repeated quite often in these few verses. The words speak, say, word, or commandment, they're repeated 12 times in these four verses alone. So that should tell us something. This portion right here is all about Jesus' words. So Jesus says in verse 47, If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. But he continues in verse 48 saying that there will be a judge to this person, which is his very words. Now, I don't know about you, but one of the hardest things for me about the Gospel of John is just figuring out who's going to judge who at the end, right? Some texts say that the Son will judge. Chapter 522, the Father judges no one but has entrusted all the judgment to the Son. Some texts say that the Father will judge, chapter 8, 50, 51. I'm not seeking glory for myself. There is one who seeks, and he is the judge, God the Father. So who will it be? As it looks like, Jesus has left the final piece of the puzzle to this very last text. And it's the first time that he or anyone else says that his words will be the judge at the end. So let's see why that's the case. When it comes to verse 49, it starts with an important, important connection clause. It says, for or because, depending on your translation. This means that whatever Jesus is about to say now is the reason why he said that his words are the judge for the last day. He says, for or because I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, which is what to say, and what to speak. So here's the key. The reason why Jesus' words will judge in the end is because they come with the authority of God himself. 
the Son says and does exactly as it pleases to the Father. Not only do you see God when you see Jesus, as verse 45 taught us, but you hear God when you hear Jesus. His words are the very words of God. In fact, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So God is the judge, but just as he says in chapter 5.22, he has entrusted all the judgment to the Son. This is because Jesus is the embodiment of the message of God. So that he speaks out the words of sentencing to all who perish. And he does so on behalf of God. All illustrations kind of fall short here to try to understand this. But think of it as God being the judge, and the judge who issues a warrant gives it out to the police officer, and the police officer executes that warrant, right, that search warrant. The police officer has then both his own authority as a public servant and the authority of the judge through that piece of paper with which he comes knocking at the door to search someone's house or a building. Likewise, but in a much deeper sense, God the Father and the Son judge together, one through the other. But then look at how surprisingly Jesus finishes these words. Verse 50, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say just as the Father has told me. The problem is, if we can call it that, is that he's been talking about judgment for all these past verses, and now he says his words are eternal life. How can these words bring judgment if they're words of eternal life? This is the point where the exclusivity of Jesus becomes very real very quick. Because if you can only come to God through Jesus... Those who reject the words of Jesus have rejected God and his offer of eternal life. Those who hear Jesus' words but don't keep them, meaning that they don't accept him and reject his words, they have rejected God himself, as we saw in the last point. And as such, they have forsaken eternal life. John 14, 21 says, Whoever has my commandments or my words and keep them, He's the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. And the opposite is true. Chapter 12, 47. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, verse 48, the very words I have spoken to them will condemn them at the last day. This duality, these polar opposites, is the same thing that John the Baptist has been preaching all along since the beginning of the gospel. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not believe or whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. So the way we relate to the words of Jesus is not just a matter of personal preference. It is a decision between life and death. And that's how Jesus concludes his public ministry, with a choice between eternal life and eternal death. 
So as we conclude, I think it should be really clear by now that your response to Jesus is your response to God. That's because those who deny Jesus deny God. Those who believe in Jesus believe in God. And that those who hear the words of Jesus and fail to keep them have forsaken eternal life. I can imagine that for many of us right now, the question probably is, well, how can I be sure that my faith then is a true one? Have I believed hard enough, convincingly enough? And that might afflict many of us. But I want to tell you, however, that our relationship with Jesus is not dependent on the intensity of our faith. If it was, we can all agree that we would be in a pretty bad condition day in and day out. I don't know about you, but my faith sometimes varies a lot. One day I'm feeling super faithful and triumphant in believing in Jesus, and other days I'm like, man, but money really is short. Man, but my sins really are a lot, and they're repeated. So where do I stand? The quality of our faith is measured by the quality of the person that we believe in. If someone is hanging by a cliff, she's desperate for her life, and she sees a branch of this rotten tree, and she tries to grab hold of it, it doesn't matter how strongly she believes that that branch will hold her. It doesn't matter if she trusts and prays that that branch will hold her. If it doesn't support her weight, she's done. But if it holds her, then she has life. She's preserved. Not because of the quality of her faith, you see, but because she trusted that that was reliable. Not me, not her, but the thing she's holding on. And that's us with Jesus. We hold on to him, not on the merits of the strings of emotion and intellect and Bible verses memorized that we can just grasp him and hold him. No, he holds us because of who he is. This message is not just for those who do not know who Jesus is. I mean, if you don't know who Jesus is as your Lord and Savior, you can tell right now that you need some thinking to do, right? The stakes are high. But for us believers too, because daily we're tempted to hold on to other things, whereas we should be holding on to the one who Isaiah saw his glory and spoke of him. Do we see his glory? Do we see his worth? Is he worth believing, even to the point of embarrassment, even to the point of discomfort, social discomfort, financial discomfort, professional discomfort? Those are real temptations that we face every single day, a choice between comfort and faithfulness to the Christ that we believe in. And the question for us today is, 
do we cherish more and embrace more the glory that comes from men? Or are we seeking to see the glory that comes from God through Jesus Christ in whom we can have life? Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for your glory in Jesus Christ. It doesn't seem glorious for the world for a man to come and die for those who rebel against him. But Lord, thank you for vindicating your son and bringing him back to life so that we too can hope to live in newness of life. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for you are sitting at the right hand of God right now interceding for us. For our crippled faith, for our many sins, you intercede for us. And thank you because we can rest and rest in you alone is what we hope to do. Be with us, Lord Jesus. Amen.